We're in chapter 2, verse 22, and we saw in the previous verses the sins of the sons of Eli the Kohen. And we saw the verses detailing how they corrupted the temple sacrifices, eating portions of the sacrifice they weren't supposed to eat, plus they were eating these portions before they were supposed to eat them at inappropriate times. And obviously the sons of Eli, the priests in the temple, they were the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people at that time. And that's what made this such a horrendous sin. And so we continue in the chapter now where Eli the Kohen will reproof and rebuke his sons for what they're doing. Verse 22, the Eli Zaken Ma'od, and Eli was very old. And he heard what his sons were doing to all of Israel. So why does the verse mention at this point that Eli was old? Well, that explains why his sons were able to do what they were doing. First of all, they're taking over because he's old. He's not functioning. He's semi-retired. But it also lets us know why they got away with it because their father was old. He's less aware to what's going on. But now he's going to call them out on their sins. And he says like this. He heard all that they were doing to all of Israel. And he heard that they would lie with the women who assembled at the entrance of the old Moed, at the tent of the meeting. Whoa, whoa, let's hold up right there. He heard that his sons were lying with the women who were assembling at the entrance of the tent. What is that all about? I mean, that's what it says. They would lie with the women. But even though it reads that way literally, none of the commentators take this as the pshat. If this was true, that the sons of Eli were laying with the women who came to the temple, that would have been mentioned already because we already listed their sins in verses 13 to 15. Why would we just throw it in right now parenthetically? And by the way, they were sleeping with the women who congregated at the temple. I mean, if they're committing adultery, that should be the headline. It shouldn't be mentioned derech agav, you know, on the side as it is here. Also, in a couple of verses from now, Anisha Lokim, a man of God, is going to come to Eli. He's going to rebuke Eli and he's going to mention the sins of the sons and he mentions the sins of the sacrifices that were corrupted. He doesn't mention that they were adulterers. If the sons of Eli were adulterers, again, that would be catching the headlines. So what does it mean? What does it mean, Asher Yishkavun et Hashim, that they would lie with the women who congregated or assembled at the Petachol Moed? Well, when do women assemble at the temple? The woman is obligated to bring a korban yoledit after she gives birth. As it says in the book of Ayikra, chapter 12, verse 6, that after giving birth, she has to offer a bird offering. Now, why does a woman who gives birth, why is she obligated to bring a sacrifice? What did she do wrong? Well, she didn't do anything wrong. The Rambam explains that since she survived the dangers of childbirth, then the sacrifice constitutes a kind of relief offering for that. And there's another reason given in the Talmud that the woman during the anguish of her labor, well, she easily may have thought that, well, this is the last time I'm going to be with my husband. Never again. So in any case, that's the halacha. And that's why women were coming to the temple. They had just given birth and now we're offering a sacrifice. And because Eli's sons were sloppy and slow and not caring enough and not doing their work diligently, these women had to wait extra time. And this delay prevented them from being with their husbands. So it's as if the sons of Eli were sleeping with them because they delayed them from sleeping with their husbands back home. Now that might sound like a whitewash, but again, it's probably more logical than saying they actually slept with them. And you have almost the same situation back in the book of Genesis regarding Reuven, the son of Yaakov. It says that, That's what it says, that Reuven went and he slept with Bila. Now, Bila is the handmaid of Rachel. What is Reuven, the son of Yaakov, sleeping with her? How could that be? I mean, it's almost inconceivable that Reuven, the firstborn of Jacob, 
slept with Rachel's handmaid Bilah, it would be an unbelievable act if it were literally true. And that's why Rashi, based on the Gomorrah in Shabbat 55, he explains what really happened. He explains that when Rachel died, Yaakov moved his bed that had been placed in the tent of Rachel into the tent of her handmaiden, Bilah. And Reuven came along and contested this shaming of his mother because Yaakov should have moved in with Leah and not with Bilah. And he said, and this is the quote from the Talmud, if my mother's sister was her rival, that's one thing, but her handmaid should be a rival as well, that's intolerable. And therefore he moved his father's bed to his mother's tent. That's what happened back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. Not that he literally slept with her, but he switched the beds. So there as well, we do not take the verse literally. One more thing before moving on to the next verse. It says the sons of Eli would lay with the women who congregated or assembled at the Petach Oel Moed, at the tent of the meeting. But in Hebrew, the word is the women were Tzavot Petach Oel Moed. Now Tzavot comes from the word army, Tzavah. You're making the word army into a verb. So they were arming, so to speak, if you take it literally, at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Now, obviously, that makes no sense. So in English, you're going to have a variety of explanations what that word means. Either they congregated there, or they assembled there, or they served there. But why is the word tzavot used from the word tzavah? What does armies have to do with this? So Rabbi Kahana explains it that, remember, these women were coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice after giving birth, a korban yoledet, a special bird offering. So the Rav says that they're using the word tzavah, army, here, for assemble, because each child born is another soldier in Hashem's army. And in addition to that, to be a good Jew and a holy Jew, you need a lot of self-sacrifice. And it's a war out there. It's a battle. And so the term sava is used as a verb. The women tzavot petach moed. Let's go on to the next verse, verse 23. And this is where Eli rebukes his sons for their horrendous conduct. And he said to them, Lamitasun. Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. And he continues in verse 24, Albanai, no, my sons. The report I hear about you is spreading among the Lord's people and it's not good. So as we mentioned earlier, Eli is old and the behavior of his sons is known to him, you know, just through word of mouth, he hears a report amongst the people. He didn't even notice it himself, which means, like we said, he's probably semi-retired at this point. But if you notice also, it's kind of a soft rebukement. Albanai, no, my sons. He's chastising them, but it's kind of soft. And now in the next verse, Eli will explain to his sons the severity of their sins. Imyachte ish leish, we're in verse 25. If one person sins against another person, upilelo elokim, then a judge will come along and he'll mediate the matter. That is, if the sin is man to man, it'll go to court and the problem will be resolved. However, if he will sin against God, that is, an between man and God, who will stand in judgment on his behalf? So Eli, their father, is explaining to them the difference between sins of man to man and of man to God. If it's man to man... Like we said, it'll be resolved in a courtroom. And even if the guy doesn't do tshuva, at least he's going to pay what he owes or pay a fine or something. 
But if the sin is man towards God, well, there's no way to fix that. And of course, the nature of the sins of the sons of Eli are man to God. They are corrupting the sacrifices of the Lord. So that's the rebukement of Eli towards his sons. And what's their response? But they did not hearken to their father's voice. For the Lord desired to put them to death. Now that part of the verse has to be seriously examined because it sounds like they lost their free choice. I mean, that's what the verse is saying. They didn't listen to their father's rebukements because God wanted them dead. I mean, that's what it says here. And there's a verse in Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 32, famous verse, which states exactly the opposite of this. It says, I do not desire to see the wicked put to death. Yet here it says he wants to see the wicked put to death. Almost the same wording as that verse in Ezekiel. So what's going on here? Why did the sons of Eli lose their free choice, as the verse seems to imply? Obviously, the commentators chimed in on this. And one of the explanations is that sometimes the verdict is already in, that you reach a point of no return, that the sons of Eli had sinned for so long and had not repented for so long that it came to a point where the gates of repentance were closed on them. And the Radak adds that they were in such a state of sinfulness, they had sunken so low that even if they had repented, it wouldn't have been sincere. And in the Rambam, in the laws of repentance, in chapter four, the Rambam there gives 24 different types of sins which cause the prevention of tshuva. That is, there are certain types of sins, the nature of these sins, they can block the ability of the person to repent and one of those sins, by the way, is hasoneta tochachot. He who despises rebukements. He doesn't want to hear any rebukements. He doesn't want any criticism. That kind of person will have a very difficult time repenting. But still, the verse seems to go against the rules of free choice. And Rabbi Meir Kahana, in his commentary, kind of combines all the commentaries together. And I'll read it in Hebrew and translate. Kol mefashim, all of the commentators, tarchu lasbir madua chafetz Hashem lamitam. They try to explain why does Hashem desire to put them to death? And then he brings Rashi and the Redak that we brought. And then he gives his own idea. And to me it seems, that free choice exists only when you're talking about individual sinners. As he puts it. Just regular sinners. But there are certain kind of sinners that they're in a position of authority, what we call They don't just sin, but they're making other people sin and they're causing And in such a situation, Hashem will prevent the natural processes of free choice, of repentance, and Chafni Vipinchas Chilushem Shamayim, and Chafni Vipinchas desecrated the name of God, they did not know Hashem, as the verse says. And remember, they're in that category of leaders of Chote Umachti. They're not just individual sinners, but their sins are public. They're in positions of power. And therefore, the rules of the game start to change. And the Rav continues, and without a doubt, there was a point where they could have repented. That is, before there was a point of no return, they could have repented. But when their desecration of God's name, their chil Hashem, spread out amongst all the people to such a high degree, at that point, their verdict was sealed. That is, it's too late now. You did too much damage in the public sphere. And even if you do tshuva, that's not going to help all the people you messed up. But more than that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to wipe out the Chilul Hashem. And he has to punish them in public. 
So everybody sees what happens to them. And in that way, you rectify somewhat to the Chilul Hashem by punishing the sinners. And that's why Hashem chafetz lamitam. He desired to put them to death and they don't do tshuva. Because the damage had been done, it had spread out amongst the people. And now the Rav's going to get into a very famous question that's been asked about Paro. After all, what happened with Paro when Moses said, let my people go? Hashem hardened his heart. He blocked his tshuva. Same thing. He took away his free choice. And on that episode, many commentators explain what is this? Why did he block his free choice? What does that mean? And Pharaoh was absorbing these plagues and his heart was hardened. So what's that all about? Well, according to the principles we just set down, we can understand what's going on with Pharaoh. What happened with Pharaoh and Moses? Moses comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says to him, Lo yadati et Hashem. I don't know Hashem. That is, I don't know the God of the Hebrews. You're coming in his name. So Parah was doing a chilul Hashem. He was emptying gods from the world, a chilul from the Lashon Chalal. He was saying, there is no God. There is no God of Israel. So the rabbi says here, gamsham. And therefore, in this instance as well, Mana Hashem et Hashem prevented Paro from doing tshuva. That's the idea behind hardening his heart. Hashem had to increase the makot and increase the kiddush Hashem in the world. So he did not want Paro to give in and send the Jews away because the chilul Hashem had to be rectified through the series of Makot. Then the Rav concludes, But when it comes to just regular sinners and regular people, not those whom but just the regular sinners, God forbid that we say that Shuva is being prevented from them. The opposite. Hashem is waiting for their Shuva to their very last day. Verse 26, And the lad Shmuel was growing up and getting greater and greater, v'tov gamem Hashem, and he found favor both with Hashem, v'gamem Hashem, and also with people. And this is another obvious contrast verse, in contrast to the sons of Eli, again, Shmuel, he's something else entirely. That's why the verse should start out, not and the lad Shmuel, but the lad Shmuel. In contrast to the sons of Eli, he's getting greater and greater all the time. We've said over and over that Shmuel is serving the Lord, we said it in verse 11 that the child was serving Hashem. We said it in verse 18 that Shmuel was, was serving the Lord in Shiloh. And just a couple of verses ago, we said the boy grew up with the Lord. But what's the difference here? Here we have an addition. Here it says he was great with the Lord and also im anashim, with people. And on this verse, Rabbi Kahana comments that many times those who learn Torah in Yeshiva all day, they're serving Hashem in the study hall, in the Beit Midrash, and they're satisfied just with that, without taking an interest in what's going on beyond the walls of the study hall. They're not taking an interest in the people and their suffering. And worse than that, sometimes they can even become arrogant and say, hey, we're better than the masses who don't know Torah like we do. And the Rav calls it Ga'ava Yeshivatit, a phenomenon that occurs in yeshivas called Yeshiva arrogance, Ga'ava Yeshivatit. And they're forgetting the Aleph Bet of Judaism, the very fundamentals of Judaism. And that's to be tov lebriot, to be good and well-liked by your fellow man. That's the goal of the Jew, to be tov lebriot. So the verse is saying here that Shmuel wasn't like that, but rather he was always working on improving his relationship with God. He was with Hashem, but also iman Hashem. He wasn't only tov Hashem, but he was also tov Hashem. He was good with people. And we'll stop right here because from here on, we're going to get the punishment that's about to be meted out to the house of Eli. Stay tuned.